So, uh, in fact, let's start with a prayer. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your holy word and for um, uh, the correct doctrine that we embrace and love um, and put our faith in Jesus through. And in this epistle uh, to the Galatians, we're going to see that there is also a wrong doctrine that we should guard against uh, for those who twist it into something that is not. We pray that you would um, always show us our Savior Jesus and not, um, not permit any of us to be dragged back under the bondage to the law, but to gladly and joyfully embrace the gospel of our Savior Jesus and his gift to us. And in his name we pray, amen. So Galatians is, um, if it's not the earliest, it's one of the earliest books of the New Testament. Um, I don't know exactly what you went through with Pastor Scharf. Um, kind of a history of, 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 of this and that, where you just doused with the fire hose of his knowledge. He gets going sometimes, and it's all over the place, but you, you, you get it. It's the way that I wash my cats. You know, you just kind of hope. Um, uh, Galatians is, I'm just going to show you this. This is um, a terrible photocopy of a good manuscript. Um, and sometimes manuscript studies, um, which um, is, is, is part of what I do, um, uh, can be based on things like this. This is just legible enough that I'm able to, to discern what it says, but it does say Paulus, Apostolus, and so forth, which is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, um, and so forth. Uh, this is the beginning of Galatians in this um, uh, fourth century, so mid-300s manuscript. Um, the reason why this is significant is it's one of the oldest complete copies, not just of Galatians, but of the entire New Testament. So there are fragments of, of books of the Bible, of New Testament books, that go back to, oh, say 25 years after the death of the Apostle John. They're very, very old. And then we have documents that are already quoting the New Testament before, when, when John was still living. So there are things that, 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 that are very, very ancient. This is, is significant because just because it's the complete thing. And when you compare the fragments that are there before this to this, and then you compare this to what we have today, you see that there isn't a development of the New Testament. It just is. It's the same now that we had in the 10th century, that we had in the 4th century, that we had in the 1st century. So the New Testament books themselves um, were not changed and modified. We have them. Um, there are variant things in the New Testament, and you will sometimes hear people talk about thousands of variant readings in the manuscripts. Um, about 97% of those thousands are the spelling of proper names. And then if you read our U.S. Constitution, you're, you're, you're thinking, oh, that's better than this. Because have you ever looked at the actual document of the U.S. Constitution, the preamble and so forth? See if you can find the preamble online that's the actual manuscript. And you'll be like, what, are, what were they using for a dictionary? Because your spelling is all over the place. Because spelling, in that sense, was not really codified in the, in, in the world. Um, uh, really, even with the printing press, until really bookmaking became a bigger deal 
and it, it's and, and especially um, the uh, the I'm gonna do it with my hand the um, what is it the the telegraph with the telegraph came standardization of spelling um, and the New Testament is remarkable because its spelling is better than like early American documents which is pretty cool and pretty wild but every once in a while somebody would preach a famous sermon on part of the New Testament or Old Testament and some of their words were so wonderful that people would write them in the margins of their copy of the Bible and then they sneak in and then you have to decide is this part of the original or somebody's really good sermon and things like that there's a famous uh, line that's in um, 1 John about this with the uh, um, the, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and so forth. And and is that the Trinity, or is that something? Is it just baptism, for example, and and things like that? Well, with Galatians, there are fewer of those um, than in many books of the New Testament. So we're not going to go into a lot of textual things. I'm just going to we're just going to read the book for the most part. And let's begin by just asking the question first of all: Where was Galatia? So this is Asia Minor. If you take your right hand and look at the palm of your right hand with the fingers pointing sideways, that's Asia Minor or Turkey. Okay, that's a map of Asia Minor. Where your thumb is up on top is where the Black Sea is. Okay, and where your pinky is on the bottom are where the Taurus Mountains were and uh, Pamphylia, Lycia, and so forth. The fingers themselves are what they used to call Asia. And the palm of your hand is Galatia. Okay? So that's your map of things. And it was just called Little Asia or Asia Minor. Because they had no idea how big Asia Major was. It turns out Asia Major is a lot bigger than Asia Minor. Um, it's the biggest continent in the world. But they didn't know that. They had no idea. In fact, very little of actual Asia is mentioned in Scripture. Um, a little bit of Russia... And there's one reference in Isaiah to China. Otherwise, there's not much in the Bible about Asia. It's mostly Europe, mostly Africa, and mostly the Middle East. Where did the wife come? Oh, um, Mesopotamia, okay. um, which is where, like, Ur of the Chaldees is where Abraham had come from originally. Okay. And that's where some of the exiles went to in Babylon, especially Daniel. And while Daniel was in the Middle East, in, in Mesopotamia, he became the chief of the wise men. So that tells me why the wise men were looking forward to the Savior, because Daniel had prophesied about the Savior, especially in Daniel chapter 9. And so, sure, they were looking for the Savior to come. And then there's a, but then there's a whole line of, uh, of questioning about the star and so forth. Today, just, just about that, there's a question even today about what do we mean by the star settling over the house in um this is in matthew chapter one about this the, the christmas star and so forth well the phrase the house is not just a geographical term for where people live but when you're talking about stars a house is an astrological term for what constellation is it in or what part of the sky is it in that's its house you know um, you're all too young to remember the song but of, of the age of Aquarius. But when the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter aligns with Mars, that's an example of that kind of stuff. And so was the, was the star that was 
this uh, whatever it was, was it just moving into a certain part of the sky that the ordinary person on the street wouldn't have been paying attention to? But these astrologers were, you know, and so they were watching for it when nobody else was. Maybe, you know, I'm not sure. Um, but uh, with regard to Galatia uh, here, in the, on the map here, it's, the, it's that bigger green section that I've here outlined in my beautiful yellow outlining skills. It is like a badly drawn letter S. You know, with a great, you know, the beginning, the top part is too big and so forth. Like when I make my S when I'm signing my name. It's giant, you know, thing. That's Galatia. And just to know some of its history, where did it, where is it from? Because the Galatians were basically Germans um, or French folks. It's from Gaul. That's where it gets its name from, is Gaul. Um, so it was invaded by three tribes from Gaul, Celts and Germans, in the year around the year 280 BC. Um, but way up north, above the green part of the map, I'll show it to you again in a second. Well, in fact, I'll just go back to it. Um, way up north, the purple part, or red, or whatever it, it is on the screen there, Bithynia and Pontus, that king needed help in a war. And he got the Gauls to help him in that war. And his name was Nicomedes I. And there was this, this uprising. And he granted them the uh, the land to the south of Pontus, where he was king. The, the interior of Turkey is not very pretty. I mean, if you like mountains, it's beautiful. But if you're trying to raise corn or goats or something, or raise your kids, it's not very nice. It's very mountainous. Um, there are plenty of streams and stuff, but it's not the best place to live. So he decided to give that to the Gauls. And the Gauls were thinking, great, thanks, it's land. We live here now. And they moved in. And so it became Little Gaul, which is what Gaulatia means. Okay, so they, they had been around for 300 years. And so from 280 now to the year 50 or so, when Paul is writing uh, this, or in the 40s, um, that's, that's who the Galatians were. Now there's this other group in the book we're going to meet. They're called the Judaizers. And one of the reasons why I wanted to start with Galatians is because it asks the big question. We have an Old Testament and a New Testament. How do we know that the New Testament is right? And does that make the Old Testament wrong? Or is the Old Testament something else in relation to the New Testament? And where are we going with all this? What are they, why are there two? What's happening? And Paul's going to explain this very carefully and quite often. He's not going to let go of this. Have you ever given a dog a rag and then tried to get it away from the dog? That's Paul and this doctrine in Galatians. He just, he just keeps grabbing at it and he will not let go because people's souls are at stake. That's the problem. So the Judaizers are people who believed that you had to still be under the Old Testament law to, to, to be saved. And the thing is, these are not Jews. These are Christians who used to be Jews. And they're thinking, no, you have to go the same route I did, which is you have to become a Jew and then become a Christian. And Paul's going to say, no, you don't. That's just not the way that it works. And so he uses a term quite, a, quite often in the book 
which is to twist. He, he, calls it the, he calls them the gospel twisters. Usually the translation just says Judaizers, but um, this is actually maybe ideal for the way my voice sounds right now because it kind of sounds like I have strep throat. That's the word for twist in Greek, is strepho. That's what strep throat means. Um, it's, it's to strep or to twist the throat. Um, is what, that's what strep throat is. And to twist the gospel is to turn it into something that it's not supposed to be. Okay? So I think the Lord gave me this voice today for a reason. So we'll just, we'll just yeah, so you're welcome. Yeah. So the claim of the Judaizers was that the ceremonial practices of the Old Testament church were still binding. And when you think of the Jews, what's the one big thing you think that Jews do besides sacrifice? Circumcision. And at this time, we're actually about 30 years before the temple was destroyed. So there were still sacrifices going on. And that was a problem for some Christians. Because what happens if, I, if, I'm, uh, if I'm from a family of priests? You know, I'm a Levite and my family has always been priests. My grandpa was a priest. Great-grandpa was a priest. Great-great-grandma was married to this famous priest. And now I get called up to be a priest. But I'm a Christian. What do I do? You know, there's a story about this. It's not in scripture, but it's that Mark, the, 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 the guy who wrote the second gospel, was actually called up to be a priest. And he didn't want to do it. He wanted to go and spread the gospel around with Paul and Peter and so forth. And so he actually basically took his hand, um, put it under a paper cutter and went slice and cut off the tips of his fingers. Um, which I don't recommend anyone ever to do. Uh, but and that, that story, though, is, is, is sort of promulgated because his nickname later on became Colobodactylus, which means stump-fingered. They called him Old Stumpy because he evidently cut the tips of his finger. Because if your body is maimed in any way, you can't serve in the temple. So he, went, he decided stump-fingered. I might have gone for stump-toed rather than stump-fingered or something like that, or you know, a little bit of earlobe or something. But he went for, he went for stump-fingered, I don't know. But Their claim of the Judaizers was that the Gentile Christians would still have to be circumcised. So no choice. They have to go in and be circumcised. And then, therefore, since Paul is preaching against this, Paul is not an authentic apostle. So Paul has to back up and go through all of this and say, wait a second, I am an apostle. And in this chapter, he's going to tell us that story. How did I become an apostle? And therefore, if Paul is a true apostle, then his message is correct also. So he's going to go in reverse order from, from authentic call to authentic doctrine. Whereas they were going, we have false doctrine, therefore we're going to question his call, and he's just going to back up through all of that. So, all right. Then as, uh, as Luther talked about Galatians, and he called it a lot of things. Luther called this his, his favorite epistle. He called it the queen of the epistles, and that therefore Romans would be king. But he also talked about this as his Katie. Do you know what that means? Katie was his wife. So he read Galatians every day of his life as the reformer. Um, 
it's only six chapters. Read it, read it, read it. You know, basically in, in two chapter chunks, take about 20 minutes, you know, even with a break. Um, it's very, very quick reading. And he had it memorized very, you know, very, very quickly. This is a man who also as a monk had had been forced to memorize all 150 psalms because they sang through them every month and sometimes in a single week. Can you imagine, you know, sitting there before Holy Father who's going to quiz you now on Psalm 119 verses 172 to 176? You know, do you know that? Not only do you know the words, but you know the tune, you know, that kind of thing. And, and you know, they all knew it. That's... That is, that is both a, a, a joy and a burden of our time. Um, in Luther's time, there was no question. Everything was Latin. So there was, there, there was only, it was a one-trick pony um, until he himself went to German and then he had to write papers entitled In Defense of My Translation Of. There's a whole string of those papers of people who are, because there's, a, there's, a, there's an Italian saying, Traditore, uh, traditore, which is the translator is a traitor. So if you dare to translate, people are going to hate you. Um, and on, the, on this new evangelical heritage version, I translated two of the books in that document. I've learned what that means, that people will call you a traitor and hate you and write things to you and say things to you and behind your back. And it just happens, you know, it just happens. Um, Luther also talked about this book because it lays out the two kinds of righteousness better than any other book of the Bible. This is the story of Galatians, which is what are these two kinds of righteousness? Because everybody gets active righteousness. This is what I should do for God. And in fact, under the old Catholic Church, that's all that they talked about. What do we do for God? This is obedience to the law. Um, Many Christian denominations today are still caught up on this. What do we do about, what do we do for God? Why, do we, why does that happen? Well, because that's what all parents do, because that's the only way to parent with discipline. You know, you want to obey, because the only commandment that children really ever need to be taught is the fourth. Honor your father and mother. Why? Because in, when you're a child, Father and mother stand in place of God in your life. So to a child, the fourth commandment is like the first and so forth. You know. But then our children grow up and they need the other commandments. Um, and Luther often talked about, I don't even need four through ten anymore because I can never get through one to three. You know, Because we have so many sins just about our relationship with God that I don't even have time to think about my relationship with anybody else. But... <clears throat> With regard to active righteousness, the problem that so many fall into is the problem of sin. You know, it just blocks everything. I had a family member, um, not of my, you know, not my brother or sister, but a family member um, who ended up as a Methodist minister for a great deal of their adult life. The day that they, or the weekend that they stepped down from the ministry and retired, um, we um we had them over at our house, um or no, it was at my dad's house actually, because back in Wisconsin, and I was asked to say the table prayer before the before our little meal and stuff, and we sat down and having snacks and whatever, 
And at that time, um, um, my family goes through different things we do before meals. Sometimes, like if we have kids still in school, we'd go through the catechism or whatever memory work they had. Then we would say the table prayer. It was a good way of keeping it up in front of everybody. That way the brothers can help the brothers remember and stuff like that. And if there wasn't any, or in the summertime, we would do like little Bible trivia quizzes. You know, name one person who was on Noah's Ark. You know, you, you give that one to the little kid, you know, and the, things like that. Well, we were doing one where we were explaining, you know, things in the catechism. And I thought, well, for this Methodist minister, I'll throw them a kind of a softball. And I said, explain baptism. You know, I figured, you know, it, right? The response I got was, oh, that's really a hard question. I thought, you retired yesterday from, the, from a 25-year ministry and you can't tell me today what baptism is? Well, that's because of this. If, if, if your denomination doesn't focus on what God has done for us, but only on what we do for God, baptism becomes a, an, an indecipherable mystery. It must be something we do to obey God because he's commanded, but we don't understand what it is and what it does. Because baptism is a sacrament. It's the gospel. And that's not in this picture. This is our response to the gospel. Um, so there's another kind of righteousness beyond what we do for God, which is taught in, it's, it's all over the Bible. But if, you're, if you don't understand it, you don't see it anywhere. It's like you have, um, back in the days of horse-drawn buggies, they would put things to the sides of the horse's eyes so they wouldn't be distracted by the new fashions and things like that. Um, they're called blinders. And you end up with blinders on about all kinds of things. And this is one of them, which is that this other kind of righteousness is the passive righteousness that we receive from God. When I teach this in class, I have a kid stand up and come over and punch me in the face to teach them what passive is, which of us is active and which of us is passive. But the last time I did it, the um, and since... Uh, since his mother is upstairs teaching, I won't tell you who it was. But uh, he, he broke my glasses, so I had to get new frames. That's when I got these new frames, because he, he hit me so hard, he broke my glasses, which was, he didn't even wait until I had time to take them off. You know, he just, he just came up and popped me one, which is kind of funny. But. So what God has done for us is he, is, he gives us the righteousness from Christ, Christ, of course, removes the problem of sin. And then we get back to giving thanks to God, which is our active righteousness. But if you didn't know about the passive righteousness, then it would all be about sin and not knowing how to get around it. Yeah. What is happening? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's Abraham in Genesis 15. And that keeps getting brought up in the New Testament, including Galatians. So we're going to see that come because it was faith that grabbed onto God's promise. Abraham was acknowledged as having saving faith before he ever did anything. So Abraham believing God, that's before circumcision, that's before offering Isaac, that's before getting up and doing anything for God when he is still just passive. 
God said, I'm going to make you a great nation, and all nations on earth are going to be blessed through your seed. And all Abraham did was say, wow. So he believed God. He trusted that. He bought into it. And God credited that to him as his righteousness, even though he hadn't lifted a pinky to do anything in response to God, which is an illustration of this. This is the passive obedience as opposed to the active obedience. I'll, I'll, I'll quote a, a guy I knew as a child who does an online thing now who, who likes to, his name is Lance, and he likes to say, um, I have a degree in history and I love history. And I'm going to say, I have a degree in theology and I love theology. So I, don't, I never mind asking and answering questions. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Orleans, Minnesota.